Uh, I appreciate, a lot of people have been praying for me this week, and I appreciate that. I need it. But no one will cut you to the heart like a relative. And uh, when my, my son told his, his uh, middle boy, you know, Papa's preaching on uh, Sunday, and all he said was, oh, no. <laughs> so you can take that any way you want. I, you know, I think that means I need a little help. So anyway, one of, the, one of the blessings that we have in our English Bible is that it's easy to find things. We have it handily divided into chapter and verse book. And the drawback is that we often tend to think of these things as natural breaks of thought or idea. But often that isn't the case. And the last few weeks have really changed my understanding of just what Jesus was talking about based on context and audience. Uh, he used the same uh, parable of the lost sheep in Luke for an entirely different end than he does here in Matthew. So uh, that was uh, quite an uh, awakening for me. <sighs> does how we treat each other matter? Overall, <clears throat> of chapter 18, Jesus says that it does. We learned that this section of teaching came from the question from among the disciples of who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And we've seen Jesus totally, totally turn the uh, disciples' concepts of what it meant to be great in the kingdom upside down, stating that those who are humble and childlike and accept uh, what Jesus is offering in that manner, the little ones will be the greatest in the kingdom of, of heaven. And we also learned he wasn't just talking about children. The little ones are often us. Then he, in the strongest possible terms, warns us to take sin seriously. Not only for our own sake, but for the sake of the least of these. Because we don't live as isolated beings, our sin can and does affect others and can even cause them to sin. And the terms Jesus uses in this passage are metaphors, but they're direct and intentional. Better to be maimed than to be cast into hell. And then from last week, the telling of the parable of the lost sheep starts with an admonition. Don't look down on one of the little ones. In the kingdom economy, even the little ones have value. And at one time or another, we are the little ones. And Lance brought up the point, and I think this is very significant, that the lost sheep isn't found and then just put into isolation with a just you and me, Lord, relationship. The goal is to return it to the safety and community of the flock. We need each other. And even if we don't like to think that, we need the community of believers. So Jesus has used metaphor and hyper, I said again, hyper, hyperbole. I said hyperbole the last time because uh, I've been to college. Uh, <laughs> to make his point. And in this passage, he gets incredibly practical and specific. It almost kind of reminds us of, of a part from like Leviticus. Uh, it's very specific. It is no surprise that conflict will arise within the people of the kingdom. It's going to happen. 
But the way we deal with conflict may be more important than the conflict itself. Let me give you an example. Uh, we saw earlier about a, a camp, a, a teen camp that, that was in uh, Glorietta. Well, for 20 years, my wife were involved in a Christian children's camp in the San Jacinto Mountains outside LA for about 20 years. And for the last four of those, we were the directors. It was a camp for kids in grades four through eight. And I don't know why we came up with that particular combination, because we dealt from very childish homesickness to raging hormones. So <laughs> you figure that one out for yourself. But it was run through a council that consisted of adults uh, from two or three local churches. And the council dealt with every aspect of the camp, from Bible classes, curriculum, recreation activities, and, of course, staffing. Well, one of my concerns was that over the years, people had gotten a little proprietary about their positions. And um, in one of my more brilliant moments, I suggested that we change things up a bit and each of us should try and serve in a different capacity. And the most efficient way to communicate these ideas, I thought, was through a letter to each member of the council to discuss the new positions at the next meeting. And of course, that was not received all that well. As you can imagine, these people were threatened or put out that something that they had grown very accustomed to was changing. And so most of the folks on the council started to talk with each other about the audacity of Laura and myself and who did we think we were and why would you even do this and all the other things that go with that. And after many phone calls between them, it was decided for them to have a meeting before the meeting. And they worked themselves up pretty much into a lather. And so when Laura and I showed up, we were pretty much ambushed as every member of the council basically unloaded on us for an hour and a half. And then we had pie. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We didn't stay for the pie. We were unprepared for this. And as you can imagine, we reacted defensively. We didn't really know what to do or say. So we just kind of shut down, shook our heads, and looked down at the floor. Now, I want you to know, I meant no offense by what I did, I wasn't, but I wasn't even given the chance to explain. The thing that was most distressing to me was that these people were friends and brothers and sisters uh, that I had worked with for 20 years. My own kids didn't know what it was like not to go to camp, uh, and yet none of that seemed to matter when it came to the issue of staffing, relations be hanged. We didn't care. And things got so bad that in order for us to even begin to start the camp, a conflict intervention had to be held. I want to bear, remind you this is for a Christian camp. Not one of our better moments. We made some compromises and got along well enough so that camp uh, could happen that year and we could finish it. But we soon resigned our position and bowed out of the camp uh, and of the eight relationships that we had had for over 20 years, only one survived. The camp limped on for a few more years, and then Pepperdine University uh, took over the leadership, and irony of ironies, made all the decisions about staffing and curriculum with their director. 
And not one of the people in the council is involved in any way with that camp. The issues that were so important at the time mean nothing today. Yet the emotional and spiritual fallout from the conflict still remains. Who was the aggrieved party? Me? Them? Both? I'm not sure it matters. I know that no one in the process, including myself, handled the situation appropriately. This, the situation wasn't bathed in prayer, and the question wasn't asked if the Lord would be proud of us for how we dealt with each other. In light of this being a Christian camp, I have to ask, how was God glorified in this? And do borrow a question from Kaya a few weeks ago, was it worth it? It isn't easy to deal with people who offend or sin against you. But Jesus states that it's intensely important that we do so in a way that reflects his nature and values and above all seeks reconciliation. Although this is a paraphrase, I think Eugene Peterson in the message uh, captures the essence of this teaching. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out just between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. And if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start all over from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Take this most seriously. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven, and a no on earth is a no in heaven. What you say to one another is eternal. I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all and make a prayer of it, my Father in heaven goes into action. And when two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure I'll be there. Now we can talk about to whom God, Jesus was given authority to bind and loose things on earth and in heaven. And by the way, the commentators I uh, read are about split on what that means. Some say it's to the 12 apostles. Some say it means to the local church. But the statement is limited to the topic at hand, matters of fellowship. And you can make your own mind up about what, which group means which, but don't miss the most important concept. That whoever he's talking to, he wants them to know that this is deadly serious. How we treat each other matters. The consequences of how we treat each other are eternal. It should be remembered that all this is given within the context of what, what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom. Reconciliation with each other isn't a new concept here. Jesus has already taught us what to do if we sin against a brother, and that's in Matthew 5. And he tells us that if someone has something against us, we need to be reconciled to him before we give our offering. Our heart condition is vastly more important than our religious observance. In this passage, the Matthew 5 one, and today's passage, he is instructing us to how to manage conflict with a brother who sins against us. By the way, in either case, 
it's always our responsibility to go first. So, what have we learned? Well, reconciliation is a gospel issue. Why is this so important? I think it is because at the heart of Jesus' ministry is taking the people who have sinned against a holy and righteous God, people who were lost and condemned in their sin, and through his sacrifice, reconcile them to that same righteous and holy God. Jesus' incarnation in itself was about restoration. So doesn't it follow that his church must also have an idea about the practice of love and reconciliation at the forefront of everything we do? Now this may come as a newsflash to you. Our culture takes hard stands on virtually everything, from political parties, wearing masks, the importance of recycling, or any other social issue. But kingdom citizens should be different than the rest of the culture. When a person becomes a follower of Jesus, he begins a new relationship, not only with God, but with others who have done the same thing. A new follower is a member of the family of believers. And this family is more than a social club or a group of people who have something in common like an interest or a hobby. We have a common Lord and a common spirit that binds us together in a way that is unique. And it isn't something that should be easily walked away from. The body of Christ is also one of the ways, most significant ways actually, that God uses to bring us to maturity and transform us into the likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit that lives within the followers of Christ empowers us to have a special relationship with one another that transcends the generations, political or national affiliation, social status, race, gender, wealth, or any other thing that might separate us from each other. Believers build each other up in faith, and they can trust each other for godly counsel, and they can comfort each other in the most extreme trials of life. The love of God binds us together in a way that nothing else can. And when we live this way, we are witnesses to the glory of God. Non-believers may not always understand it, but they always see something different and wonderful in the way that we can treat each other. Next, reconciliation is a command. John 13 uh, says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In this, Christ is taking great care to build his church and to preserve, number one, purity, meaning the authority to confront sin in the church and to reconcile its members to himself and to each other. He's also looking to preserve peace and order, meaning that there's a way to maintain peace within conflict and keeping the objective of reconciliation and restoration. And third, he wants to preserve love meaning the love that comes from God that can bind us together in perfect unity. The goal of these interactions is not to be proven right, but rather to mend the fences. My personal religious background was from a tradition that focused on 
I'm using this in quotes, right doctrine, meaning how I or, or others like me saw and understood Scripture. Well, we took that to be more important than right relationships. So it should come as no surprise that there were often church splits and changes of membership, so much so that in some small towns there might be as many as three or four churches in the same denomination, uh, and they all came from splits. As often or not, these splits were about personality or leadership style, differences of opinions or misunderstandings about how things were handled, but they were all handled in a non-biblical manner, and they caused divisions and parties within the church. I'm going to assume that Christ had little to do with how these people tried to settle their differences. So inevitably, the church split, and the body of Christ was diminished. Now, this passage doesn't say that every disagreement is a reason for offense. Good people can and do have different understandings about what certain scriptures mean. And I know this because good people can and do have different understandings about what certain scriptures mean. It's pure arrogance to think that we understand all scripture perfectly. So I can almost be sure that's not what he's talking about. It also doesn't mean that you can dump your baggage on a brother because you don't like the way he does things. Style and preference differences are not sins against us. And it's just an idea. Maybe if we are uh, a little too offended too often, we might be a little concerned. Maybe we need to not be so prickly and let differences of opinion and outlook be individual choices. And can we also just show a little grace to those who disagree with us? It might be a good idea to have a civil and honest conversation with those whom, with whom we differ to understand where they come from. And we may not have a lot in common with our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and that's all right. We're not necessarily called to be buddies, but we are called to regard each other as part of the family of God and treat each other with gentleness, kindness, respect, patience, and above all, love. No, I think the sin mentioned here is more of a personal nature and not necessarily a theological dispute. It can be an attack on your integrity, your honesty, your motivation. It can be uh, found in gossip or slander. It can even be a sin against you, your family, or your marriage. In any case, Jesus makes it plain that if someone has offended us, it's up to us to go to him first. Maybe we misunderstood the offense. Maybe the person spoke in haste or anger. Or maybe they don't even know if they offended us. But one of the things, the first step he wants us is to solve the problem at the most intimate and personal level. Our first response should not be to involve the church or others in the situation for that matter, but to allow a brother to know that he has wronged us and give him the opportunity to make things right. We need to be able to forgive at that moment and move on. If that doesn't work, bring along someone else to see both sides. And this is not ganging up on that person. You don't get all your, your friends who agree with you to come. It's, it's actually an attempt for godly people 
to give counsel and to witness what was going on. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I didn't need to take offense in the first place. And again, if the problem is resolved, there probably isn't a need to discuss it with others in the church. We shouldn't be replaying the offense to others to let them know how much we were offended. Let's move on. Remember that just like Jesus, the goal is to bring the errant brother into repentance and a change of heart. So he'll be restored to both God and you. The goal is restoration, not vindication. Next, reconciliation requires a uh, posture of forgiveness. We are to take the situation to the church to mediate always with the aim of bringing reconciliation between the two parties. Forgiveness is our attitude and restoration is our goal. Taking these steps helps to keep our motives and attitudes pure. It also impresses upon all parties concerned the seriousness of the offense. What it doesn't say is that if things don't work out at first, treat the offender as the devil incarnate or a demon to be cast into hell. No, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, meaning someone who has not accepted the gospel yet but has the capability of being restored and received again. Count him not as an enemy but as a lost sheep. Be willing to forgive your brother. And last, this is the uh, hardest part, reconciliation isn't easy. Since conflict and sin are such painful things to deal with, it can be our tendency just to go along to get along. And that sounds great, but it doesn't usually work. We can't ignore sin any more than God can. Because sin ruins relationships. So we always have to put the idea of restoration of the relationship as the top priority, even as we confront sin. This isn't a new idea with Jesus. In Leviticus 19 it states, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, isn't it interesting to note that God doesn't want us to sin when we confront sin in another? So even if we've been sinned against, we're not allowed the option of hostility and hate. Paul puts it this way. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. That's from Ephesians. I'll be real honest with you. This is one of my hard, hardest struggles I have today. We were talking in our community group about what sins we struggle with. For me, and God, I guess he knew what he was doing when he, I, I'm the one doing this uh, presentation. So this is the hardest part because I don't even have sometimes the desire to forgive and settle differences with those who have offended me. Because someone has wounded my pride or called into question my worth, I feel the need to vindicate myself, usually with anger or dismissal of the person who offended me, and uh, I'm very defensive. So where is Jesus in this situation? If I've been justified by him, 
Why do I need to justify myself? But I sin in my anger and treat a brother or sister whom Jesus died for as someone less worthy than me. I despise the little ones, and I can even cause them to sin. I forget my own need for a savior. So the message is probably for me as much as anyone. But Jesus does give us a remedy for this problem. We're to follow his directives where there's conflict. Again, with the intent of reconciliation. Forgiveness is at the heart of this process. So when we address sin against us, we should, number one, check our attitude. Do we really want to restore a relationship or just look for a reason to get this person or situation out of my life? We're not called to dispose of a, a problem. We need to correct it. And I can't bask in self-righteous pride because I was the one offended. I need to be concerned about the offender's well-being. God has forgiven me much. Can I really do less for somebody else? Number two, we need to lift the situation up to God. I don't think we can really expect to mend relationships without God being involved in the process. This isn't an option. It's an expectation. Bring him in on the process. Pray with expectancy and humility that his will will be done in this situation. So make sure he's present in the process. And three, be willing to accept that sometimes relationship can't be restored, but never stop praying for the errant brother. People have pride and sin and can be stubborn, but if the fences can't be mended, our hearts should be breaking. Mine was. These were friends of 20 years. Had, my kids grew up with them. They had them over a house. Now, for whatever reason, for a difference of a, opinion, that relationship's gone. Who benefited? This isn't a matter of I got my way and I'm vindicated. No, continue praying for that brother or sister that, that he or she would repent and come back into the fold. But no matter how the other person responds, we're to forgive. Forgiveness and restoration is the core of Jesus' ministry. He came as a man, lived a perfect life, and died for the sins of the world. Why? In order to allow our sins to be able to be forgiven and for us to be reconciled to the Father and also to each other. Jesus fixes our broken relationships. When he showed the disciples how to pray, he made sure that that idea of forgiveness was a vital component. In Matthew 6, he says, forgive our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you. That scares me to death. Uh, too often I have not even been willing to engage that. And yet this is 
as, as, as seriously as you can say it, as directly as you can say it. We have to model that forgiveness with each other if we expect to receive it for ourselves. So forgiveness is foundational to Jesus, and he teaches that to be foundational to us, even in how we pray. Now, I don't want you to hear this as a formula for venting or grievances or fire insurance, and what I mean by fire insurance is the legalistic following of rules or steps to avoid condemnation with our hearts being actually very far from God, meaning we've done the, wrong, the right thing for the wrong reasons. Our desire should be for restoring relationships. So we need to pray that our hearts are aligned with Jesus. Restoration is always the goal. Sometimes really difficult decisions have to be made to maintain the purity of the church. But even in that, a Christ-like gentleness is required. The way we handle conflict reflects on our master. Again, there's the warning against self-righteous pride on the part of the offended. Always, we have to view others in the light of how Christ views us, that is, as redeemed sinners. If Christ forgives and restores, can we do less for our brothers? And the last point we need to consider is probably the first point we need to consider. We really can't do this alone. Our human nature and sin isn't enough to really mend relationships. We have to have God invited into the process. If the conflict requires other people to be involved, make sure that we can gather in his name. In his name means we're doing it as representatives of him. We're doing it in ways that would reflect his glory and mercy and love in a way that would bring honor to him. Jesus isn't too busy to show up. When we ask him to be involved in the process, we're asking that the result will be in keeping with his will and that all the people involved will abide in Christ. Pray that God will be present and glorified in our words and actions. And just a little side note, uh, there's hope for people even like me. A couple years after the camp meeting from hell, I uh, ran into one of my former friends, and I was overcome with the need to speak with him about how we left off. I told him that although I was offended, I had sinned against him in thought and in words to others about how I was treated, and I had sinned against him, and I asked for forgiveness. His response was kind of unexpected. He told me that he too was also troubled by the end of our relationship, but he just didn't know what to say to make it right. Maybe we both should have read this passage. Uh, he confessed that his heart wasn't right either, so we offered forgiveness to each other, shook hands, and then went our separate ways. Since then, when I've seen this brother, we are genuinely glad to see each other and really do want the best for each other. Now, we're not as tight as we once were, but there's not the cloud of anger and hurt hanging over us either. The nature of Christ is to work toward restoration and relationship. I think we're closest to the heart of Christ when we're about the same things. Let's pray. Father, we uh, acknowledge that too often, even within the church, our hearts are so brittle and so 
flawed and our sin is so ever before us that we respond defensively or in anger when somebody offends us. Father, help, help us to take uh, ourselves out of that equation, but to, to see people as you see them. Father, help us to forgive. Help us to desire reconciliation. Help us to bring you in the process. And Father, help us to always see you as the author of, of all love and all peace. Empower us as we do this. Thank you for this message. We ask this in Christ's name.